From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are Cindy Sane, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent and Steve Reddish, VOA Executive Producer. Welcome Cindy and Steve. Thanks for having us. Well, here are the issues. President Biden kicked off a public campaign across U.S. cities for his recently passed $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill with a visit to the Port of Baltimore in the U.S. state of Maryland as the White House tries to capitalize on the legislative win. The bill has yet to be signed and many projects are years away from being completed, but the Biden administration hopes to make the spending more tangible to the American public. Vice President Kamala Harris visited Paris this week, her third international trip this year. But in contrast to her first two, where she met with individual heads of state and focused on bilateral relationships, this is the first where Harris is the top White House official at a large gathering of world leaders. A flurry of subpoenas shows the House of Representatives Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol building is setting its sights on how former President Trump and his loyalists devised a plan to block Congress from certifying President Biden's victory, an effort that they say directly led to the violence at the Capitol. Representatives to the United Nations Security Council say time is running out on finding a political solution to the Tigray conflict before Ethiopia descends into all-out civil war. The warning comes as people in the Tigray region suffer food and fuel shortages due to a government blockade of humanitarian aid. The United States ended a COVID pandemic travel ban that was in place for more than a year and a half a relief for the tourism industry and for families that have been separated by the rules since the crisis began. Meanwhile, the White House said businesses should move forward with President Biden's COVID-19 vaccine and testing requirements for private businesses, despite a federal appeals court ordering a temporary halt to the rules. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Cindy, President Biden traveled to several U.S. cities to promote his infrastructure bill directly to the people. Do Americans think this bill will make the country more inclusive, environmentally resilient, and industrially competitive? Well, Kim, you're right that President Biden and his Democrats finally had a big legislative win after months of internal fighting over the bill, and they got it passed through Congress. We're hearing that the president is going to have a signing ceremony at the White House, and now it's up to President Biden to try to capitalize on this legislative win, but he has to sell it to voters. And he went to Baltimore to talk about how ports are one of the areas that is going to get money. And, you know, polls do show that helping the crumbling U.S. infrastructure is very popular. I think about 65 percent of Americans support this infrastructure bill that has passed. And that, that's a large number of Americans to agree on anything these days. But I think it's a matter of trying to reach people and get the message out when there's so many other things happening with people fatigued with COVID and inflation, you know, high prices on gas and other goods. So, you know, it's, it's trying to get that message out to Americans. The president sees it much more than an infrastructure bill. He sees it as a jobs bill. And what he's counting on politically is it'll put more middle-class Americans to work. 
in better paying jobs. The problem with this is infrastructure takes time. You can't start building a new bridge tomorrow and have it ready in seven months or a new highway and expect it to open by election day 2022. And that's the political possibilities that the president sees in bringing the economy back, getting out of the pandemic mindset and into what is much more of, an, of a normal society. And some projects are shovel ready. Most are in the dream and the, and the planning phase. So Biden's got to really sell it. And then once he sells it, he's got to produce the goods and show that more people are not just at work, but more people are working at jobs connected to the infrastructure bill. It's been a running joke in Washington about infrastructure week. Every administration has promised an infrastructure week where they were going to put out a position and a proposal to rebuild the nation's infrastructure. Biden has finally done it. But what really matters is making sure that the American voters understand that he's the one who delivered on the jobs and everything else that the infrastructure eight years from now, when it's ready and built, will provide. Those are some really good points that you raise, especially in looking at the economy with the holiday season approaching. Americans are also faced with a supply chain problem, higher heating bills, higher gas prices. And one political strategist says the White House needs to figure out how to effectively communicate what it's trying to do or people will lose faith. Those are his words. So how can the White House be more effective in delivering their messages and in listening to and responding to the American people? I think it's much more about demonstration. And the president can go out. He's been in Baltimore. He's going to go on a multi-city tour once he signs the bill to be able to sell the bill. But the American electorate and the mood right now is, what do you got for me right now? And Biden has to try and deliver that in order for Democrats to win the congressional elections that are less than a year from now. And that's why he's pushing a second piece of legislation called Build Back Better to try and help bolster the societal infrastructure, which the Democrats call it, to spend on making child care more affordable, combat climate change, bolster health care for Americans. If Biden is able to get that bill passed, those are the kind of tangible benefits that Americans will see in their paychecks, in their bank accounts right away that he can claim credit for. But that's now being debated in Congress it's among Democrats. Democrats are split on whether or not to go forward with a large bill like this because of what you just mentioned, Kim, the inflationary measures that so much of the COVID relief has caused, prices are soaring, getting goods from one place to another in order to build cars and fix boats and be able to just have their basic goods on people's shelves and grocery shelves is at risk because of the supply chain problems, which goes back to COVID which goes to what Biden is trying to do to try and overcome that and put more money in people's pockets right away with this second piece of legislation. Those are really good points there, and we'll just continue to follow this process as the Democratic Party has a grueling few weeks ahead of it to enact the rest of its economic agenda. 
And also, Cindy, we have Vice President Kamala Harris. She's meeting with some two dozen world leaders, including some of the biggest leaders in Europe, such as France's Emmanuel Macron, Germany's Angela Merkel. So what does the Vice President hope to accomplish on this trip? Right, Kim. Well, this is a five-day trip to France, which is, as someone who uh, has the privilege of being able to go on some of these diplomatic trips, is quite a long time. And I think she's really making the point that the U.S. wants to heal a rift with Paris over this, listeners may remember, this AUKUS, ruckus, as some called it, that France was enraged by a U.S. nuclear submarine deal with Australia because France had a submarine deal with Australia and then that was basically, that was nullified by this U.S. deal. And France uh, was blindsided. It was not told about it in advance. So President Biden has spoken with Macron and Harris met with Macron and toured the Elysee Palace. And as we said, is spending five days there. And it does seem like the initial rage over it is subsiding and that things are getting better. Although France is still saying, you know, what concrete things is the U.S. going to do? Macron's main pet project is strengthening European defense, and he wants some U.S. support on that. I think that Harris is trying to do is to raise her own international profile after her first trip abroad to Guatemala and Mexico had some bumps in the road. Going back to what you just said, Cindy, about France wanting to shore up the European defense, I found it interesting that Harris announced that the U.S. and France would work to establish a regular dialogue and cooperation on space, especially since the rift between the two countries is about submarines and underwater. But going back to what you said about the defense of Europe, expanding the frontiers of space, the two countries work on increasing access to science, technology, and engineering to enable a sustainable space economy. Part of the space economy is defending from space and being able to use space as a, as a way to watch out for what's going on and be able to decipher and detect threats against a country. China is very much moving into the space business, and I can see why the U.S. and France want to link up in space. And that is an interesting aspect. And also going back to Cindy, you mentioned Kamala Harris is raising the profile of her position on an international level. Joel Goldstein, a scholar of the vice presidency at St. Louis University, he's considered one of the foremost experts on the office. He says that one of the things that has made foreign travel appealing to vice presidents, going back to Richard Nixon, is that it presents them as a leader on the world stage. It elevates them, he says. So this is a good opportunity for Harris to develop international relationships on her own. Yes, that's absolutely right. And we always know that, you know, vice presidents seem to sort of disappear somewhat, although, you know, she has been quite visible at the White House. But some Republican critics have said, well, why is Harris not outselling the infrastructure bill, which we were just talking about right now? We've seen some uh, surrogates, such as Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg uh, really selling the, the the infrastructure bill. But of course, you can't be two places at once. And for a president and a vice president, there's both domestic and international things to take care of. And, and France is the oldest ally of the United States and it's an important relationship. 
And what they are stressing is that, yes, there was this, you know, this unfortunate incident over the Australian nuclear submarine deal. But basically, the U.S. and France share the same values. They share the same goals. They want to work together in the Pacific and elsewhere. Very good points. And back on Capitol Hill, the special committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol issued 16 new subpoenas for ex-administration officials, top Trump campaign aides, and even law professor John Eastman, who crafted the now infamous memo laying out how in six steps then-Vice President Mike Pence could take unilateral action to overturn the election and declare Trump the victor. However, Pence rejected this plan as unconstitutional. He tallied the electoral votes and declared Biden the winner. So what is the goal of the committee at this point, Steve? The goal of the committee is to try and get as many pieces of testimony from as many different people as possible in order to then create what the narrative of the day as well, the days and weeks ahead of January 6th, how they all came about. They're really trying to look at a trail of communication and who was talking to whom and what they were telling, what they were planning and who was involved. I found it interesting that several members of Pence's inner circle have been subpoenaed, as have been the people who were part of the organizing of the January 6th Stop the Steal rally at the White House. So what the committee is really trying to do is get as many of the people who were part of the administration and the campaign who were there on January 6th or involved in various different planning to give their testimony, and they can build a narrative from that in order to present whatever it is to the American public. Also, the panel chairman, Benny Thompson, a Democrat from Mississippi, and Vice Chair Liz Cheney, a Republican from Wyoming, have laid blame for the events of January 6th at the feet of Trump. Cheney has stated that Trump instructing allies to defy subpoenas shows that the 45th president was personally involved in the planning and execution of January 6th. So we've kind of looked at this in the past. Will Trump be subpoenaed? It's going to be difficult, I think, for them to subpoena the former president of the United States. It sounds like what the committee is trying to do is get as many people around the former president as possible to answer their questions as to what was going on and maybe subpoena Trump. But I'm not quite sure whether that is part of the committee's plans or not. One thing that was key that happened last Wednesday is that a federal judge denied Trump's request to prevent White House records from being seen by the committee. The committee subpoenaed a whole bunch of records, phone logs, visitor logs, all kinds of things that are normally kept by the White House and then eventually go to the National Archives. They've subpoenaed that. So Trump claimed executive privilege to keep the records from being released. The judge found that Trump cannot claim executive privilege because the current president, President Biden, has agreed to allow these records to be released. So the former president now has to scramble to figure out the next step in either keeping these records from being seen or what his next legal effort is going to be.
Well, however this plays out, it will be a historical document for future generations of Americans and historians in examining a potential undermining of a U.S. presidential election. Well, it's time now for a quick break, and when we come back, an estimated 7 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance in northern Ethiopia alone. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype. Cindy Sane, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent, and Steve Reddish, VOA Executive Producer. Well, Cindy, the international community has eyes on Ethiopia as it continues to delve into a major humanitarian crisis. And I know you've been covering developments there. So what is the situation right now? Well, basically what we have, this conflict is rooted in a power struggle between Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, who is a Nobel Prize winner, and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, which dominated politics in Ethiopia for three decades until Abiy took office in 2018. And now, for a year now, we have had conflict, we've had fighting going on in this Tigray, northern Tigray region between the government. We've had Eritrean forces coming in, which thousands have been killed, and as you said, millions are facing starvation in Tigray now. There's basically no fuel and food prices have gone up so high that most people can't afford to get it and there are food shortages. But we have the situation now where Tigrayan forces have formed an alliance with eight other groups and are actually advancing towards the capital, Addis Ababa, which is a, of course, a huge city. And this caused the government to declare a state of emergency. And this state of emergency, the government has a lot of powers to detain people and they issued ID cards. And with these ID cards, they can also identify person's ethnicity. And what we're hearing now is that in and around the capital, Ethiopian's government security forces are rounding up and detaining up to hundreds of ethnic Tigrayans including priests, including bankers, including Tigrayans who work for the United Nations, UN staffers. So this is a very deteriorating situation. And we have Secretary of State Blinken calling on all sides to pull back, calling for a ceasefire, saying let's just have a halt and that there has to be a political dialogue. And the African Union High Representative for the Horn of Africa, Alushigan Obasanjo, who was in Ethiopia, he said he has been engaging with all stakeholders, including the prime minister and president of Ethiopia, in an effort to de-escalate the situation. And also, as you mentioned, Cindy, he's also urging the council to consider strongly the federal government of Ethiopia and the Tigray rebels to engage in political dialogue without any conditions. So is this a feasible solution, especially when we have observers seeing a potential civil war erupting? And that is the question that exactly that Secretary Blinken and others have been getting. You know, we keep hearing also from former President Obasanjo that there is a window of a opportunity for a political dialogue and that that window is closing quickly. 
I mean, diplomatic efforts are ongoing at this point. We have the U.S. Special Envoy, Jeffrey Feltman, who is in the region. And as you said, this uh, African Union High representative, Obasanjo. So the diplomatic efforts are underway. And I think if there's anything that would make it perhaps possible that the parties sit down and talk is the fact that now the situation has kind of turned on its head. There is a possibility, at least, that rebel forces could advance on the Capitol, which would have been unthinkable just weeks ago. So as Secretary Blinken said, it's an opportunity born out of necessity. But so far, none of the parties have come out and said, yes, we're willing to talk. We, we haven't heard that yet. There's a huge concern that Ethiopia, which is a major military power in the Horn of Africa, with the government collapsing, there's 110 plus million people in Ethiopia. How many would go across borders as refugees? It's really a big concern. It's a big strategic concern, a military concern, and a regional concern for Ethiopia to remain a together government. Thank you. Yes, it's a very good point. And I want to move on to get our last topic in. The U.S. has reached a milestone this past week by ending its international travel ban and opening the door to vaccinated visitors. This milestone is a relief for the tourism industry and for families that have been separated by the rules since the crisis began. This, I guess, is really good news for so many people. Your thoughts on this? It's another step toward what is going to be the new normal for the U.S. and the world going forward. The tourism industry and also business travel as well allows for that to take place internationally. So economically and societally, I think that's a big lift as far as we're trending toward moving back toward something that appears to be normal. Right. I would just point out that it is, it's a bit ironic and it just points to the sort of the cyclical nature of this COVID pandemic that now when the U.S. finally lifts the travel ban, cases are actually very high now in Europe, particularly Eastern Europe is now like the global epicenter of the pandemic. And when the U.S. was considering this, cases were higher here. And now Europe is going through a wave with you have like officials in Germany saying, you know, we have got to get prepared for this winter or else, you know, we're going to have more deaths than we had in the last year. And I'm also seeing that even here in the U.S. where there's been a lot of good news and children are getting vaccinated now, but cases have been going down. But I'm seeing now that cases are sort of they're leveling off and emergency rooms are still full. And we've had President Biden again and again calling on the unvaccinated to get vaccinated, saying, you know, you're overrunning our emergency rooms and our intensive care units. The bottom line for the U.S. economy and the world economy is that the pandemic is still in control. And until the pandemic is broken and more people get vaccinated, it's always going to be in control. Yes, that is true. And also looking at the legal battle over the Biden administration's coronavirus vaccination or testing requirements for private businesses is falling along the country's sharp political fault lines with Republican-led states, conservative legal groups, and sympathetic employers lining up most forcibly to try to block Biden's mandate. So how is this going to play out with the pandemic still here? 
I think that Biden is leaning on businesses to implement their own vaccine mandates and their own testing policies. The federal mandate aside, and, and whether that is upheld by the courts or not, Biden is putting pressure on businesses because if more people are vaccinated, more people will be out, more people will be buying, the economy will get back to normal, more people will go back to work. That's what Biden sees not only for the country's revival, but for his own political fortunes as well. That's what he needs in order for the Democrats to win the 2022 congressional elections and for him to win re-election in 2024 if he seeks the nomination. Well, we'll have to end the show on that note. My thanks go to our panelists, Cindy Sane, BOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent, and Steve Radish, BOA Executive Producer. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News.